About 20 years ago, uh, one of Carol's cousins was out here visiting with us. Uh, she and her husband were touring the West in their motorhome and uh, stopped by to see us for a few days. It happened to be the weekend of the Kentucky Derby, and we all sat down in our living room to watch the famous thoroughbred race on Saturday afternoon, and just as the race was about to start, the power went off. And I thought, this is interesting, blue sky, no wind, no storms, very pleasant spring day, kind of strange for the power to go out, but we waited for a few minutes, nothing happened. So I called the co-op outage number to report it, and I was told that a terrible lightning storm in the area of Rapid City, South Dakota, had blown up a massive transformer at a major transmission station down there, and had knocked out the power for almost the entire state of Montana, as well as the western half of North Dakota and South Dakota. There was nothing anybody could do about it but just sit around uh, here and just wait for folks down there to get the transformer replaced. And about 14 hours later, about 4 o'clock Sunday morning, the power was back on. We were able to move on uh, with the Sunday church or move ahead with Sunday church. I was kind of wondering there for a while how long it would be two days before they got the transformer fixed or not. You know, we who live in rural Montana are no strangers to power outages. Uh, usually they're minor issues that don't last too long, but we are, we are so accustomed to reliable electricity and everything operates on it, so power outages are always somewhat annoying and disruptive. And in our passage today in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, uh, Mark discusses a power failure. Not an electrical power, of course, but spiritual power. We're also going to read today one of my favorite phrases in all of the Gospels. We're also going to read in this passage one of the most misunderstood and misapplied verses in the Gospels. So we have a very fascinating text before us today. I want you to follow along as I read the entire story. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 up through verse 29. And we're going to focus our thoughts around four basic themes. Demon possession, the disciples' failure, their power failure, a father's plea, and the power of focused prayer. So Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And when he came to the disciples, remember he was just coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? What are you discussing with the disciples? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. 
Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Jesus Christ, along with Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of his disciples, have just come down from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured before them. We studied that in the last couple of weeks. The the veil of Jesus' humanity was pulled away for a few brief moments. And as John later described it, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They witnessed a brief display of the radiant glory of God the Son, and they watched and they listened to Jesus' brief discussion with Moses and Elijah regarding the cross and the resurrection. We spent two Sundays examining that event, just the last couple weeks. Well, we now enter this period of time in which Jesus begins to move toward Jerusalem, as he told his disciples he was going to do, and where he will die and rise again and ascend back into heaven. Mark's record of the next several weeks as they move toward Jerusalem focuses on Jesus teaching his disciples things they will need to know before Jesus returns to heaven after he has accomplished our salvation, our redemption. As we saw last week, there are several references during this time to the coming cross, but the primary emphasis is Jesus' instruction on these various issues that were critical for the training of his apostles. The first lesson before us he's teaching today is the idea of faith, the power of faith. There will be upcoming lessons on on humility, on not causing people to stumble, on the seriousness of sin, on Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, the place of children in the kingdom of God, the correct attitude toward earthly riches versus true wealth. There's teachings on leadership and sacrificial service. And then at the end of chapter 10, there's a final lesson on faith again. These training sessions kind of come at the, at, at, to a conclusion at the end of chapter 10. And in chapter 11, verse 1, Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final week of his life on earth. So you can kind of see where we're going in the next few months, Lord willing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this story that I just read to you. But it's interesting that Mark, in this case, Mark has the longest record. Usually Mark has the shortest recording of a story. As we've said many times, Mark's been called the Reader's Digest condensed version of the Gospels. But but in this instance, he has the most verses, he has the most detail. We can't really answer why, other than saying that the Holy Spirit apparently had a purpose in directing Mark to write a longer record. Some people might say, well, Peter was an eyewitness to, to this event, and Mark was Peter's son in the faith, so maybe Mark got a lot of detail from him. That's possible. But Matthew was also an eyewitness there, and he writes eight verses about this. Mark writes 16. Luke only has six. 
So we'll just say that the Holy Spirit had a purpose, some purpose for Mark to write more detail about this. And I'm very thankful that the Holy Spirit directed him to do that because Mark is the only one to record this wonderful saying by the father of the little boy, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that statement. That verse has ministered wonderfully to me over the years. I absolutely love that dad because he's me. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know that our lives are lived by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 2.20 says the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews said, faith is the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. Then in verse 6, he writes in Hebrews 11, for without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. After the apostle Thomas had said he would not believe that Jesus was resurrected until he saw him, and and, and until he touched his finger in the nail prints, then Jesus appeared to the disciples again, and Thomas fell down at his feet in worship. And Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet they believed. Yeah, we still, we do indeed walk by faith, not by sight. But our, our, our faith is not, is not blind faith, where you just kind of jump off this cliff into the dark, not knowing what's down there. Our faith is a faith based on evidence, but we have the certainty of God's word. We have the assurance of fulfilled prophecy. We have confidence in God's truth. We have the evidence of God's hand. You remember when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about spiritual birth in the gospel of John in chapter three, he used the illustration of the wind. Now, no one around here in their right mind would ever say that they don't believe in the wind. If you have said, I've never seen the wind, so I don't believe in it, folks around here think you're crazy. Because we haven't seen the wind, but we've seen its effects. We see what the wind does. We sense its effects. The wind comes, the wind goes. We don't know where it comes from or where it's going, Jesus said. But you see its effects. And Jesus said that's kind of like the Holy Spirit. You see, we all believe in things that we can't see. You can't see gravity. You can't see the wind, but you see evidence for them. If you don't believe in gravity, drop a brick on your toe and then try to explain why it hurts. We all believe in things that we can't see, but our faith is based on evidence. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is based on evidence. We have have the certainty of God's word. We have the assurance of fulfilled prophecy. We have the evidence of God's hand. As the Apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, we have a a sure word of prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy gives us this rock-solid confidence that God is there, that God is true, that God is in control, because we are walking by faith and not by sight. But you know, for the first two years of Jesus' ministry, the disciples were walking by sight. Jesus was there. They were eyewitnesses to everything he was doing. They were in his presence almost constantly. But while Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the other nine apostles were faced with this challenge we just read about. This distraught father brings his son to them to ask them to cast out the demon that was afflicting his son. And they were unable to do it. They couldn't do it. So when Jesus shows up, 
There's an argument going on, a discussion between the apostles and the scribes over this issue. Let's read that portion again, verse 17. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought to you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered and said to them, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. So they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. He fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice that when Jesus asked the question there in verse 16, What are you discussing with him? The scribes didn't answer, neither did the disciples. They just stood there. My guess is that the scribes didn't want to discuss anything with Jesus because he had the habit, so habit of turning the tables on them every time. They always lost every debate with Jesus, so they just stood there. Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? The scribes just stood there. The disciples, they didn't want to answer because they were embarrassed, maybe ashamed. This father comes with his son and he needs help and they can't do anything about it. They were, they, they were powerless, so they just stood there. So the father of this demon-possessed boy, he speaks to Jesus. He explains the situation. And notice that Jesus did not address the issue of spiritual power. He rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. He says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And when he says, oh, faithless generation, he's not talking to the crowd. He's talking to his disciples. He is rebuking them for their lack of faith. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And I thought, ouch. Hmm. You walk with Jesus? You're physically in his presence for two years. You're seeing everything he's doing. You're hearing everything he's teaching. And when you get put to the test and then you blow it, your master rabbi looks at you and says, Oh, you bunch of faithless characters. How long do I have to put up with you? I thought, Ooh, that kind of stings a little. What a rebuke. And we'll see the conclusion of the rebuke in a moment, but I want to talk to you today as, as we look at this passage, we're here in this text, I want to speak to you just a little bit today about demon possession. We've spoken of this previously in our study of Mark, and I don't want to repeat a bunch of information that we have already discussed, but remember that the Bible indicates that demons are fallen angels, the angels who followed Satan in his rebellion against God. The Bible does not give us the exact number of angels or demons, but it, indi it indicates there are tens of thousands of them. There appear to be ranks of angels and demons. We might think of it in military terms. Generals, colonels, majors, captains, lieutenants, sergeants, corporals, privates. I'm not saying that there are eight ranks of angels. I'm just saying there seems to be a structure of rank within the angelic forces and the demonic realm as well. Some appear to have more authority and more power than others. Demons are doing the bidding of their commander, Satan. 
They're enemies of God. They're enemies of God's people. They are focused on killing and destroying God's purposes and God's plans and God's word and God's work. That's their job. That's what they do. And we see throughout Scripture that generally speaking, demons work through people. They influence them to do wicked things. And it's not really that hard most of the time because all of we human beings, we're all sinners. And our hearts are filled with wickedness. And it doesn't take much of a nudge to get human beings to do some pretty nasty things. The Bible also teaches that our sin is not Satan's fault. The famous joke of the old-time comedian Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. The people have laughed about that for generations or for many decades. It's actually a lie of the devil. The devil cannot force you to do anything. He may dangle a temptation out there in front of you, but he can't force you to reach out and take it. We do that because we want to feed our sinful cravings. And the devil totally understands human nature. He knows which button to push to influence us down the wrong path, but he can't force us to take it. We are totally responsible for our own sinful choices. Remember the apostle John said in 1 John 2 that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh right in the middle of it. That's me. That's, that's me. That's my flesh. That's my cravings. So, so demonic forces are out there. The demon world is real. And they seek to influence and oppress and distract and tempt and deceive. But possession of a human body is the most extreme, most violent, most d destructive activity of the demonic world. And it is the most rare. It is, it is a terrible misunderstanding of Scripture to think that every single physical problem that we have is caused by a demon. Many people preach that today, but it, it, it is wrong. If you have a backache or a headache or a stomach issues or diabetes or a cancer issue or you don't hear too well out of your left ear or your eyes are a little blurry, it's not a demon that's in you. It's that we live with the curse of sin in our physical bodies and we are slowly deteriorating. We are falling apart a little at a time and the older you get, the faster the process goes. Can any of my senior citizen friends say amen to that? That was very quiet, but, but, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, good. They didn't hear me, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are falling apart a little at a time, are we not? We live with the curse of sin in our physical bodies and we are slowly deteriorating. I have seen so much foolish nonsense out there over the years of somebody that they can't hear too well in their left ear and so somebody wants to pull out the demon of deafness. Somebody's got a backache and they want to get rid of the demon of backaches. Somebody has stomach problems. They want to be delivered from the demon of stomach problems. You just have a physical body that's cursed by sin and it's falling apart. Demons are not causing all of your physical problems. Rare occasions where a demon actually possesses the body of a person. The actual demon possession of someone's body is rare, but it is extreme and it is horrifying as in our text today. Remember the demon-possessed man a few chapters back? He was running around naked, screaming and cutting himself, living in cemeteries, totally uncontrollable, breaking things he could not be subdued. And here you have a boy who has all the signs of what medical science used to call a grand mal seizure. Now it's called a tonic-clonic condition, often caused by severe epilepsy, 
extremely low blood sugar, extremely high fevers, traumatic head injuries. He would, this demon would take this boy, throw him to the ground, he would convulse, he would salivate profusely, he'd grind his teeth. Very extreme, very frightening. And this exhausted, exasperated dad has been spending his entire life trying to keep this poor kid alive. The demon slams the kid to the ground, throws him into a cooking fire, or into rivers or pools or wells, trying to destroy him, the dad says. And he pleads for help from the Lord Jesus. He says in, in verse 22, Often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And he says, if you can do anything, will you please help us? And we have in verse 23, one of the most misused sayings of the Lord Jesus. All things are possible to him who believes. A lot of people quote that and they just misapply it to all sorts of crazy circumstances. You see, the word, the word believe means to totally trust. And in the context of this scripture, it means to totally trust the Lord Jesus. Because nothing is impossible with God. You remember the angel who appeared to the Virgin Mary to announce to her that she would become miraculously pregnant without ever having had a sexual relationship. The angel said there were those words, nothing will be impossible with God. You see, when God is performing his will, when God is fulfilling his purposes, he can do anything he wants to do to make it happen. But God never operates outside of his will and outside of his character. All things are possible to him who believes is not some magic charm that we're supposed to repeat when we want something. And if we just believe it hard enough, it will happen. Well, believe what? Believe who? You see, faith is not just having positive thoughts. It's nice to be positive. It's nice to look on the bright side. That's not faith. Faith is just believing in yourself. Just believing you can accomplish it. Believing you can achieve it. It's all over the sporting world today. You see it everywhere. Just, just believe. Just believe. I know I've told you the story before, but it kind of bears repeating again. Several years ago, we're at a girls' basketball game here in Hart Butte. Probably been 15 years ago now, at least. And uh, and and the girls were were losing badly, and the score was getting worse and worse. And a fellow got up in the stands. He's now he's now deceased. The fellow who was doing this, if I said his name, a whole bunch of you would know exactly who he was. He stood up on the he stood up in the bleachers and he started yelling, "Come on, girls, believe! Come on, girls, believe! You gotta believe!" The score kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And, worse. and my teasing wife leans over to him and says, "It's not working." And it won't, because believing, as the Bible speaks about believing, is not just positive thoughts. It's, it's nice to be positive and look on the bright side, but that's not what faith is. Faith, in, according to the scripture, is believing what God has said. Faith is trusting what God has said. You cannot, and this is a very important principle of faith, you can't create faith with your willpower. Can't happen. You cannot create faith with your willpower. You can't just willpower yourself into a life of faith. 
Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You grow in faith because you have saturated yourself with the word of God and you believe what it says and you believe it so much that you are obeying it. You are doing what God says because you believe him. That is what faith is all about. Now, you may be a determined, dedicated, focused person, and that's wonderful. You're going to accomplish more undoubtedly than a lazy, unfocused person will accomplish. But you can't create faith in God because you drum up enough willpower. Faith is a gift from God that comes to us through the Word of God and our exposure to the Word and our obedience to the Word. But you and I know, you both, we both know, our faith is never perfect. The object of our faith, God, is perfect. But our faith is not perfect. And that's why I love this overwhelmed, exhausted dad. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Everybody in this room who truly knows Jesus Christ has some level of authentic saving faith in their hearts. But the level of our faith is not constant. It grows, it, 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 it decreases, it waxes and wanes, it increases, it diminishes. Some days are good, some days are not. I don't care how strong your faith is, there are moments in this world where your faith is assaulted by the enemy of our souls. Sometimes your faith is like you feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails and you make the prayer that this man made to Jesus. I believe, but mixed in with that belief is some unbelief because my belief isn't perfect. My belief may be weak. I need help. I need help from God. Help me, Lord, with my unbelief. And when you are assaulted by doubts and your faith seems rocky and frail, you go to the source of faith. You go to the Word of God. There, there is no time in my life when my faith is stronger than when I have been immersed in the Word of God. Staying close to the Word of God, listening to the promises of our Savior, looking to the Lord Jesus, those are the things that build a powerful faith that won't let you down in the midst of affliction. This man knew where to look for an increase in faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So Jesus rebukes the demon spirit, says to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, enter him no more. The spirit cries out, gives one last attack on the little boy, convulses him greatly, and then comes out. And the boy looks like he's laying there dead. Many people thought he was. Jesus takes him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And what do you think happened then to the father's faith? Help my unbelief, he says to the Lord. Jesus says, okay. Come out, demon. Stand up, young man. How's your unbelief now, Dad? Now the father looks at his son in his wholeness, in his healing. And he looked at Jesus and he was filled with faith because Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. That's what creates faith. We look at the Word of God. We see how perfectly trustworthy God is. He has never broken a promise. He never will. He will never betray His people. And the Father's faith now is very strong. Because He saw the evidence of the work of God in His life. So when they came into the house, the disciples went up to Him privately. They said, uh, So Lord, why were you able to rebuke the demon and we failed? 
Jesus said, this kind, perhaps a stronger than normal demon, as I said, there's ranks of demons, maybe a captain, a major. He said, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. You see, the, the strength of our faith and the strength of our prayers can never be put on cruise control. Anytime you start saying to yourself, you know, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good spiritually. Better watch out. Anytime you think you kind of have things nailed down and you kind of got it all together and you're feeling pretty good about life and you're feeling pretty good about your life with the Lord, anytime that comes to you, better watch out. Because if you put your, if you put your faith, if you put your walk with God on, 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 on cruise control, you are going to get an attack. And when we face a powerful enemy, it is not simply enough to depend on the storehouse of faith that we stored up from past victories. We might be thinking, man, I know the Word of God pretty well, and I've been reading the Bible now for years, and i got a good handle on a bunch of stuff, and, and I think I'm doing pretty good. We're patting ourselves on the back saying, I think, I'm, I think I'm okay. And the devil comes along and says, oh yeah? Let's see how you handle this. See, it's not simply enough to depend on the storehouse of faith that we've stored up from the past. We need to get on our knees. We need to plead with God we need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God, and then we will see God showing Himself strong on behalf of His people. It is the power of focused prayer. Jesus says you can't just walk up to every trouble and trial and hardship in the world and say, I'm going to fix this, bang. No, He said this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. That is the power of focused prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that teaches us how you minister to us in the weakness of our faith. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Because we certainly have many flaws, many failures, many weaknesses, many stumblings. Help us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God and plead with God and lay our requests before you again and again and again. May we trust you to do your will in us and through us. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief, not just for our sake, but for your sake, and not for our glory, but for your glory. We pray in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.